Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is William Green, author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. This is an incredible book, profiling some of the greatest investors. We talk about Monish Pabrai, Charlie Munger, Bill Miller, Nick Sleep, and many, many more. And Green reveals the principles and habits that contributed to their success in both investing and in life. We talk about how these investors spend their time, how they build resiliency, how they handle the inevitable setbacks in life, the role honesty and integrity plays in their careers, and we end on a discussion about what super wealth does for these individuals and how it contributes to their well-being. I hope you enjoy my conversation with William as much as I did. My friends, I bring you William Green. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. William Green, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you so much, Sean. I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm excited about our topic today. It's your new book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the World's Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. And I'm definitely interested in that second part, too, in addition to the investing secrets to their success, how they are successful in life. I absolutely love the book. I think it's going to become a classic, and I'm excited to kind of dig into it. So you reveal the practices, sort of habits, values, principles. You distill these things from the stories of the great investors. You've looked at investors that have had tremendous success and sort of reverse engineer. What were their winning ways? And how can we find our own success in markets and life by learning and studying them? And I think that's definitely a worthy pursuit. Uh, You cover investors legendary investors, people we're all familiar with. Monish Pabrai, Sir John Templeton shows up in the book, Bill Miller, Ed Thorpe, Howard Marks, Jack Bogle, Tom Gaynor. Uh, I could go on. There's just there's so many investors that you packed in here and they have so much that we can learn from. So I thought I'd, I'd look at this or we could talk about this from some of these practices and principles. Maybe we could start with one as simple as time, how they manage their time, because I'm always fascinated with how successful investors and successful people in general manage their time because time is such a great equalizer. We all have the same amount. They may have billions of dollars, but they still only have 24 hours in the day. I I think one of the most striking things about the habits of the greatest investors is how ferociously focused they are. There's a sense in, there's a beautiful quote from Lao Tzu, the, the Taoist philosopher from thousands of years ago, where he talks about the art of subtraction. And he says that Most people are adding things every day, but what you really want to do is subtract things every day so you get to the the essence of what works. And I think for for most of us, we're living in a society where we get dinged constantly by robocalls and tweets and phone calls and reminders of meetings and stuff. And when I look at the greatest investors, they've set themselves up in such a way that they're basically only focusing on what they're extraordinarily good at. And they're only focusing on what they care about and what gets them closer to to the promised land of being the best that they can possibly be at what they're extraordinary at. So there's a kind of 
ferocious discipline to that. There, there was one. There was one investor who I don't write about much, who was who was in SEAL Team Six before he became uh, a hedge fund manager. A guy called Mike Zapata, who you know, SEAL Team Six, as you know, is the ultra elite team that was responsible for killing Osama bin Laden, and he became a hedge fund manager. And he said to me, "There are basically three priorities in my life." He said, "It's it's God, family, and fund in that order." And he said. Everything outside of those three things is basically a distraction. And then he said, in, including this conversation. And then, and then he sort of said, "Well, you know, that's okay, but so long as you don't get things, you, you, so long as you don't allow things to knock you too much off your priorities." And there, there was something kind of wonderfully tactless about it, but that actually stuck with me because I think, I think that refusal. That refusal to dabble in things that a you're not going to be good at, and b that you're not interested in, is incredibly powerful. And then if you add to that the cumulative benefit of acting like that day after day, week after week, year after year for many years, what I found is one of the most striking things to understand about habits is this kind of compounding effect. When you pick a handful of habits that work very powerfully, and then you sustain your adherence to those habits over time, so it doesn't seem like that big a deal if you get woefully distracted by Twitter or by robocalls or, or you know whatever other distractions there are each day that that come in. But think about it over a month, a year, over twenty years. And so when you look at people like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, his partner over the last forty or so years. They just have created this very, very quiet life where they're just continuously learning. And Munger always says that Buffett is a continuous learning machine. He, even in his now, now he's ninety, I guess, continues to read three, four, five, six hours or more a day. There's a wonderful investor, incredible character called Paul Lamsis, who said to me at one point, "Yeah, I'm pretty impossible to be married to," and he said basically. You know, he's like I've never played golf in my life. He he said I work seven days a week. He said when when you, you know he goes to I think the university club in New York City and uses the peloton there. But while he's using the peloton, he's actually listening to or, or watching videos of great investors speaking. And when he goes to bed, he lies in bed and watches videos of um, of great investors talking. And I I ran into him once at an investment meeting, and he literally he said to me. You gave this great talk, and he said, "These are the four points," and he recited those four points in order. So he listens to these things again and again and again. And so I think once you clear out all of the nonsense and clutter, it enables you to have this kind of obsessive focus on the things that actually matter to you and, and allow you to be extraordinary at what you've decided to do. And for most of us, we actually don't want to live in that way. We don't want to be that obsessive. But as Paul Lanzas said to me. He said, "You don't get to be、uh, Roger Federer without being totally and utterly obsessed with playing tennis." He, he said, "It's got to be all-consuming." Yes, a couple examples that really stood out for me. One was Monish Pabrai, who goes to great lengths to clear his calendar. I think you write in the book that when he shows up, most days there's not one thing on his calendar. There's not a call. There's not a meeting, and he wants to have that time to read, reflect. Learn, get better, and concentrate on investing. And he loves it. He loves having that that freedom. And I think he borrowed it from 
from Warren Buffett, or really, I should say, cloned it from Warren Buffett or uh, and Charlie exactly. Munger, because he also talks about cloning. And then the other one was Nick Sleep and Zachariah, the two legendary investors. I want to talk more about that chapter because I think we just don't hear much about them, and they're they're such amazing investors, and they're sort of under the radar and mysterious. And you you uncover some of their habits and practices, which are really fascinating. But they had a Bloomberg machine in the next room. I thought that was really interesting that they put what they put at a different level, so that it almost was yeah. painful to go watch the the Bloomberg machine. Yeah, these are these two extraordinary hedge fund managers in London, Nick Sleep and Case Zakaria, who he, he just calls Zach. And so Nick and Zach set themselves up in this extraordinarily thoughtful way. What Nick said is, we wanted to get away from the sin and folly of Wall Street. And so basically, they set up this unbelievably eccentric hedge fund called Nomad. And it was kind of the anti-Wall Street hedge fund and this incredibly high-minded experiment that was really inspired by this philosophical memoir come novel, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is all about the pursuit of quality in every area of life. And so they decided, well, everyone else is so obsessed with all of this ephemeral information, with information that, as they described it, has a very short shelf life. And so all of these other people are constantly staring at their four Bloomberg terminals and, you know, these very bright colors on their Bloomberg terminals are, are sort of flashing at them, trying to get them to act. And then you have, you know, this constant barrage of news reports from, from Bloomberg and from the market. And then you have Wall Street constantly trying to get you to be more active because they're going to make more money off you if you trade more. And so they set themselves up in total cultural opposition to this. So they said, well, we're just going to have this one Bloomberg screen. It's going to be small. And we're going to put it on top of a really short side table. And we're not going to have a chair there. So it's actually going to be physically uncomfortable to sit in front of the Bloomberg terminal being bombarded with all of this information. And what Zach said is, yeah, Nick basically wanted you to sit there for about five minutes and say, ah, this is killing my back. And so then you'd move. And, and this sounds kind of like a joke, but actually what's really interesting about it is that it's very hard to use the mind on the mind, right? So once you decide, okay, I've got all of these mental glitches, like my mind is super distractible, just becoming aware of that doesn't actually necessarily protect you from it. And so what Nick and Zach were doing there is they were finding a very practical workaround. So they were actually, it's, it's, it's like my friend Guy Spear, who's a very good hedge fund manager, said to me, you have to move the candy out of reach. And so they were moving the informational candy out of reach. You know, this is something that I think I think about a great deal as a writer because, A, I'm the world's most distractible human being and have the most scattered brain. And B, I can't even remember what B was because my brain has already gone off in a different direction now. So this has actually had a huge impact on me studying people like Nick Sleep and Zach because you can see that if, if you can remove a lot of those distractions, a lot of the ephemeral nonsense that most people are focused on. It's an unbelievable competitive advantage in life. What they decided is, okay, we're, we're going to have much less of this ephemeral noise. We're going to focus on things that actually have a long shelf life. One of the things that has an incredibly long shelf life is to look at a company that you want to analyze, that you're thinking of owning, and to say, what's the ultimate destination of this company? Where is this company going to be in 10, 20, 30 years? And then once we've done this, what Nick called destination analysis, how do you figure out what the inputs are going to be 
to get the company to that desirable destination. So if you look at a company like Costco or Amazon that became enormous, enormous winners for them, made them just vast amounts of, of money, what they were saying is, here are companies that are deferring gratification instead of trying to make as much money in the short term as possible. They just keep giving more and more to their customer. So they decided that the most important business model, the most powerful business model of all is what they call scale economies shared. So these two companies would build enormous scale by sharing their profits, sharing their cost savings, sharing the benefits of scale with their, with their customer. And then instead of pocketing all of those profits, they would just pump back more and more to the, to the customer. So it becomes, instead of your, your size becoming this, this burden, this anchor as you get bigger and you, you encounter the law of large numbers, it actually became a tremendous boon to them because as they got bigger, they became more profitable, had greater economies of scale that they could continue to share. I think because Nick and Zach were able to clear away all of the nonsense, all of the ephemeral stuff, like quarterly earnings predictions about whether this company is going to beat its analyst expectations by one cent or not, they were able to create an environment in which they were able to focus on what actually matters. And that's a really important model for all of us, what, whatever our profession, whether we're stock pickers, writers, business leaders, or whatever, you want to, you want to figure out how can, I, how can I reduce complexity and focus on what's actually going to get me to the destination. Yeah, I think those are really powerful lessons. And I, I think in that chapter, Nick called that technique, or maybe you coined it, I, I can't remember, but intentional disconnection. Is, yeah, is that the, was my phrase. Okay. But I think it's a, very, it's a very important idea. But yeah, intentional disconnection. And I mean, I try to do it myself as a writer, and I fail constantly. And um, one of the things that I reassure myself about is that one, one of my favorite characters in the book is Tom Gaynor. And Tom Gaynor, who's the co-CEO of Markel Corporation, um, which is this huge conglomerate that's kind of a mini Berkshire Hathaway that comes in around number 335 on the Fortune 500 list. What Tom Gaynor said to me is, you don't need to be perfect in your habits. What you really need is to be directionally correct. That's a phrase that I, I just think about almost every day. You want to find these habits that are directionally correct. They're going to get you approximately to the right destination. But what he points out is that if you're extreme about it, then it's probably less sustainable. So his view, he said, when I, when I was a child, he said, I had the dietary habits of a campground raccoon. So he said, I used to eat 200 donuts a year. And he said, now I probably eat 20 donuts a year. And I've had multiple meals with Tom and, you know, he, he, he would always order sort of salad and, and salmon and, and unsweetened iced tea, like every, every time I had a meal with him. And so he's not trying to be totally perfect. I mean, we had dinner at his house once and, and he, he had ice cream and, and wine with it. Uh, I, I, I think I was so busy eating it that I'm not sure I noticed whether he was eating it or not. But, um, but I think that idea of, of trying to be directionally correct rather than perfect and, and not, not being so extreme that you can't sustain it applies really to everything, whether it's work, balancing your work and family, your diet, your nutrition. And I, I'm slightly contradicting myself here because I do think there are people within the investing world who are so unbelievably driven that they manage to keep going with a level of ferocity that is sort of beyond what most of us could imagine. 
And even someone like Tom Gaynor, who says, you know, yeah, he, he describes himself as radically moderate in his habits. His definition of radically moderate is very different than almost anybody else's definition of radically moderate. So he's he's still getting up very early. He's going for an early morning run. He's getting to the office by, say, 7.15 in the morning. But, you know, he's created an incredibly quiet environment there. I, I spent about a day and a half interviewing him in his office and at his home. And he said to me at one point, have you noticed just how rarely the phone rings here? And that's intentional. He set up this environment in which it's incredibly quiet so he can think. And I've seen that again and again with the best investors. Matthew McLennan, who's a terrific investor who manages over $100 billion at a firm called First Eagle, won't have meetings in the morning. He tries to keep a day a week where he doesn't have any meetings. He schedules structured time to think. And he, he has these kind of files of ideas, I think, in his phone and his iPad that he said he keeps kind of raking over like a, like a Zen garden. And so you can imagine for someone like him with an enormous team to manage and over $100 billion and probably millions of shareholders, he could be in meetings all day long. And so again, there's that kind of intentional disconnection to give him time to think. Because as he said to me, what he's paid for is to see the world through a different lens than other people because he has to outthink the crowd. And so whatever it is that you're trying to succeed at, this ability to remove clutter, remove distraction, give, your, give yourself structured time to think is very important. And, and, and the more difficult that becomes for most people, the more powerful it is for those of us who actually can manage at least however imperfectly to shift in that direction. Let's talk about another habit you know, when we think about these great investors, we often focus on their success. And as you point out in the book, it's not a straight line to success. In every single example, there's a time in the growth of a portfolio or in an investor's life where their portfolio is going to be down and they're going to face some sort of adversity or maybe they made a big mistake and they realize it. So how did these investors say deal with mistakes and the idea of stress and adversity when the market is not agreeing with their view of the future. This, I think, is one of the most important themes I've encountered in, in studying the lives of the greatest investors. I, I, I think people often mistakenly assume that if you're a multi-billionaire or you're hugely successful and you're prominent and you're on CNBC the whole time pontificating about the future of the world, you must have it made and you must somehow be protected from you know, the, the slings and arrows of fortune. And it's simply not true. And I've spent so much time up close with the greatest investors over the last 25 years that you just see all of their pains and sorrows. You, you see them with anorexic children or sick children, or in one case, someone whose daughter had locked-in syndrome where you know, she could basically move an eyelid and that was about it. You see them getting crushed by the market intermittently, you know, underperforming for year after year after year. And so one of the things that really fascinated me most and that I enjoyed most in, in the reporting of the book was to talk to them about how they were handling that pain and suffering. And I, and I think one reason why this resonated with me so much is that writing is a really hard path and it, it, requ it requires a ton of rejection. It requires staring at blank screens the whole time. You never know if what you're doing is going to resonate with anyone. It's kind of painful. It's, it's economically uncertain. And so 
I think in asking them about these questions, I was sort of selfishly trying to trying to figure out how to learn to deal with pain and suffering and and failure and stress myself. And one of the most striking examples that I came across was Jean-Marie Evayard, who was one of the great long-term value investors who had an extraordinary long-term record over 30 or so years. But there was a period in the late 90s during the dot-com bubble when he simply refused to play this kind of casino, get-rich-quick game that was making all of his peers unbelievably rich and successful in a hurry. And he said he, he underperformed after 18 years of tremendous success. He had three years of just appalling underperformance. And he said to me, to lag is to suffer. And he said, the first year of underperformance, your, your shareholders are basically just angry, disappointed, upset. The second year, they're furious. And he said, the third year, they're gone. And he said to me, in truth, you actually do start to ask yourself if you're an idiot at a certain point. He said, everybody else seems to get this new paradigm and you don't. And I think people are going through a similar experience now with whether it's Bitcoin or Tesla or all of the, you know, GameStop, all of these other kind of modern, modern miracles where you can, you know, it, it, it's not dissimilar to in the late 90s where you'd, you'd bet on an IPO and it would go, go up 600% in a day. And so if you were a rational investor trying to buy things cheap and undervalued and to be prudent and to protect your shareholders, you actually looked like a fossil and a fool. You know, I wanted a kind of simple solution, a simple answer from someone like Evayard. And I and he was wonderfully honest about it. I, for example, he he mentioned how difficult it had been to raise his two daughters because the investing game was so all-consuming and it and as well so psychologically difficult that he said he actually just wasn't that good a parent. He wasn't that available. And I said, Do you think you'd have been a better parent if you hadn't been so focused on investing? And he said, I, I don't know, life, life is not simple. And so I think it was interesting for me to see, to see these investors wrestling with stress themselves. And we can talk about this more, but one of the things that was really striking was how many of them meditate and how many of them are drawn to stoicism. And I think those are practical solutions to deal with the destabilizing forces we've been talking about. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because we have talked about stoicism on this podcast. We brought in William Irvine, who wrote a book on stoicism. What do you think it is about stoicism that is helping these investors? Well, I think the best example of this probably is Bill Miller, who's one of the greatest and smartest investors I've ever met and who I've been interviewing on and off for the last 20 years. I think at one point I figured out I've interviewed him for almost 100 hours over the years. And Bill had this legendary streak where he beat the market for 15 years running and started to kind of be treated as omnipotent and omniscient. And as he said to me, some of that does start to seep through when you're right, right, right the whole time and everyone tells you you're brilliant, you start to believe it. And then the financial crisis came and he just made the gravest analytical error of his life and just got utterly crushed. And his, his assets under management fell from something like $77 billion to $800 million because people just fled his funds. He underperformed the market so massively. He just bought all of the wrong stocks. And what's interesting about Bill, he doesn't have anything like the standard cookie cutter background of many of the best 
fund managers who went to Wharton and Columbia Business School and Harvard Business School and the like. Bill actually was an intelligence officer for several years and before that had studied philosophy in a PhD program at Johns Hopkins. And so for Bill, he was always drawing on philosophy as a way to think about life and to help him, to guide him through it. And so Bill naturally, when I asked him how he dealt with that tremendous period of, of suffering during the financial crisis, you know, one of the worst things that had happened to him was literally over 100 people lost their jobs because of him. So he said, I, it's not just that I lost, I think it was 80% of his fortune at the time, but uh, he said 100, 100 people lost their jobs because I screwed up. And then he lost lots of money for his shareholders. So, so he put on 40 pounds. I mean, he was, he was just miserable at the time. And so when I said to him, how did you deal with it? What were you reading? He said, well, I turned to Epictetus. I was reading Seneca. I was reading Marcus Aurelius. And I read Jim Stockdale's book, Thoughts of a Philosophical Fighter Pilot, which is a wonderful book, which is about how he dealt with being, being tortured, I think something like 15 or 17 times during about six, six years when he was a prisoner of war during Vietnam. And I think one of the things that Jim Stockdale does beautifully is he talks about how he applied the lessons of Epictetus in the worst possible situation of being physically tortured. And what he was saying is, well, I can't control what my torturers are going to do. I can't actually even control whether I break down. Like under torture, I am going to break down. I am going to tell things that make me ashamed. But he said, I can control my inner life. I can control my sense of honor and virtue. And so, for example, he, as he was being walked to be tortured, he would say, he had this mantra where he would say something over and over again, like control fear, control fear and control shame. I think that was what he would say over and over again. And so he was taking responsibility for his inner state because he didn't have that much control over the, over the external outcome. And if you think about the stock market, it's a much less extreme version of that. There's a fascinating investor called Jason Karp who said to me, he started to have this horrible realization that however good his process was, his analytical process, his investment process was, he didn't actually have control over the outcome, especially in the short term. And he was being judged week by week and month by month on this thing that he had no control of. And he compared himself to rats in a lab experiment who were getting kind of electrocuted, you know, randomly because they would reach out for the cookie and, you know, for the treat they were being given. And they never knew whether they were going to get it or they were going to be electrocuted. And he said that actually induces insanity. I think one of the reasons why stoicism resonates so deeply is that it allows you to make this all important distinction between what's in your control and what's not in your control. And what's ultimately in your control is as people like Marcus Aurelius say, whether you maintain your sense of virtue and honor and dignity and internal equanimity. And that's enormously difficult. But again, if we're trying to be directionally correct, at least it's clarifying to know, okay, people are going to be bad mouthing me. They're going to be judging me. I'm going to feel publicly shamed, which is what happened to Bill Miller. I mean, he you know, he was ridiculed on social media. He was, everyone was saying what an idiot he was. And, and he said, well, I'm not trying to vindicate a reputation here. I'm just trying to get back the money for the people whose money I lost. And I'm trying to be honest and truthful about my mistakes. And he said, if I can do that, 
that's kind of good. I can control that. I can't control what they say about me. And so what was kind of wonderful for me to see was that over the next decade, he just did this stunning job of returning to the absolute pinnacle of performance. And I, I think his fund was in the top 1% over the next decade of all funds. And so that to me was a very powerful a very powerful lesson that I keep reminding myself of constantly. Whenever I'm struggling, I'm thinking about people like Bill Miller and Jason Carr. And I'm thinking, well, here are these people who are extraordinary. They're extraordinarily bright, extraordinarily hardworking, and they still get the crap kicked out of them intermittently. And if that's the case, why should I be surprised when I get the crap kicked out of me intermittently? And instead of fixating on the external circumstances, I should try to control what I could control and that includes my internal equanimity more, more than anything. And I, I fail at it constantly, but at least I know that that's the goal. And it, it helps me to kind of steer in the right direction, which I think is very helpful. Yeah, it's such a powerful lesson. And there were so many examples in the book. I mean, we, we do think that these investors have just knocked it out of the park and it was all just you know a straight path to success. But we were talking earlier about Nick Sleep and Nomad Partnership, that portfolio was down significantly during the great financial crisis. Amazon was a big holding at the time. And Amazon, I think, went down by 42 or more than that. Uh, a big percentage in the portfolio, I think you mentioned, was down by 40 some percent. Yeah, I um, think it halved in 2008 and they were down about 45 percent in 2008. And I, I, I think it's a really, really important point that you you bring up that the, 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 the path to success is not a straight one. It's It's these these massive setbacks and disappointments and fears along the way are not a glitch in the system. They're a feature. And so Matthew McLennan, who I mentioned before, said to me that one of the most important things in life is simply to survive the dips. Like most great truths, I think there's such simplicity to that phrase, survive the dips, but tremendous profundity to it. And, and again, it's something that I think about constantly myself. We're in one of the ultimate dips, right? I mean, we're in a once in a once in a century pandemic, and we've just, you know, we've had this tr tremendous financial crisis in recent years and a global recession. I mean, and I think about this constantly. Let me survive this dip. And one of the most important attributes, one of the most important insights from the greatest investors, is that you need to stay in the game. So the ability to survive these periods where you are getting the crap kicked out of you, just tough it out somehow and be aware that there's, as I put it in that in the epilogue at the end of the book, that there's great honor in the simple virtue of perseverance. I'm writing that to myself as much as I'm writing it to my readers. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to synthesize these lessons so that they guide me through my life. So when I'm struggling, I think, well, let me just survive this dip. And so one of the key insights from these great investors is how do you protect against catastrophe, right? Because yes, you need the resilience to get through these dips. You need to understand that there's a one wonderful um, line that I totally forgot to use in the book, which is this great French saying, which is life is never as good or as bad as it seems. So when, when life is terrible, don't get over despondent. When life is fantastic, don't get carried away. So you need to keep perspective at all times and know that you're going to come through, that the sun also rises. But then you also have to be very consciously guarding against catastrophe because the last thing you want is to position yourself as if 
the recent great period is going to continue or as if the recent terrible period is going to continue. Because the one thing we know is that there's this kind of pendulum where life just swings back and forth. It's, it, it never stays on one steady trajectory. And so to combine that ability to survive the dips and to position yourself so that you don't get blown out of the game and to position yourself to exploit opportunity when everyone else is getting blown out of the game, these principles are kind of at the heart of what the greatest investors do that allow them to thrive and prosper over many, many decades. Yeah, the quote that I go back to on this is, I think it's a Buffett quote, to finish first, you have to first finish. You have to survive. Yeah. And again, like all truths, it sounds so banal that when you hear it, it's very. we all nod knowingly and we remember the quote and then we don't actually live by it. There was a lovely uh, line from Charlie Munger that I think of again and again and again, where he says, take a good idea and take it seriously. And this is something that Monish Parai, who has very consciously cloned what enabled Buffett and Munger to be so successful. This is something that Monish takes incredibly seriously. When you encounter a good idea from somebody else, you don't just take it out for a joyride and smile and say, yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. You go a thousand percent. And I think that's one of the great differences between the most successful people and people who are just pretty successful is that when you find a powerful principle, you internalize it and you actually make it a core of your life. And for, for Monish, one of the most powerful things that he learned that's had a deep impact on me is that he read this book by David Hawkins. I don't know if you've read called Power Versus Force. I, th I think Hawkins' books are very remarkable in many ways. He was a psychotherapist who kind of became a, a mystic. And I think is writing in most of his books from the position of someone who's actually enlightened. And so he's kind of revealing these truths to you. And one of the things that he talks about in Power Versus Force is that there are certain attributes that make you, in his terminology, go strong and some that make you go weak. And so if, for example, you're untrustworthy or totally vain or boastful or greedy or whatever, it makes people go weak. There are these kind of attractor patterns. And if you're truthful, if you're honest, if you're scrupulously honest, it makes people go strong. People smell it. So they may not truly understand why they're drawn to you, but they're more drawn to you. And so Monish said, this is such a powerful idea. The idea that truthfulness is so key because it either makes, because it's actually going to draw honest people to you and, it's, and people are going to trust you. He said, once you understand something like that, that's a superpower. And one of the things that he did is he took about three or four of these ideas and combined them with this maniacal ferocity. So one of them is long-term compounding, right? You just you want to harness the power of long-term compounding without catastrophe so you don't have to go back to go the whole time or every few years. Another of them is just being totally and utterly truthful. So when he screwed up during the financial crisis and was down about 67% at one point, he didn't tell his shareholders, well, you know, look, the market got killed and, you know, we got swept down along it. He said, I made two or three dumbass mistakes. And he's like, that's why we're in this position. It's not because of the market. And then he delineates what those mistakes are. And almost none of his shareholders left. And then a third idea was he was just going to clone like crazy. So if he found something that was really smart that other people were doing, he was just going to replicate it with scrupulous attention to detail. And then a fourth idea was he was just going to play games he could win. 
And so he cloned the idea from Buffett that you want to avoid anything that's too hard. So Buffett would always say, how do you beat Bobby Fischer? Well, you play him anything but chess. So why would you choose to play Bobby Fischer chess? You have to stick with games you can win. And so these are all really surprisingly simple ideas. Things like staying within your circle of competence as an investor, incredibly simple idea. But if you take these simple ideas and internalize them and actually make them something that you live by, I, I think that's hugely powerful. And again, like having a kind of peaceful environment when everybody else is scattered, if you're one of the people who understands the power of taking a simple idea, taking a good idea and taking it seriously, you have an enormous competitive advantage. I want to make a connection back to handling stress and adversity. You mentioned that the investors that you talk to often would go back to their sort of fundamental character and virtue. Am I going about my business in a way that lives up to my principles, my character, and am I pursuing virtue? Am I honest and do I have integrity? And so many of these investors, all of the investors, I will say, had honesty and integrity as a bedrock. And I think it helped them through the stress and adversity. It became that kind of superpower you were talking about with, that Hawkins mentioned, and it propelled them through these difficult times and it propelled them in the good times too. I can't mention how many times you talked about the way these investors structured their funds in a way that often was not just more fair to investors as compared to what's available on Wall Street, but even going further so that they would treat their investors as they would want to be treated. I think Nick Sleep had the 6% hurdle rate that he wasn't going to make any money until he returned at least 6%. Pobri had the same thing. And that goes all the way back to Buffett's partnership. So maybe talk a little bit about this, the idea of honesty, integrity as being a bedrock. Yeah. It's eminently possible that I'm focusing on a small subset of investors who have more integrity and more, more decency and more honor. And that's, that's, not a, that's not an unconscious decision. I wanted to focus on people who weren't just unbelievably gifted at making money. They are very gifted at making money, but I'm looking to learn what you can learn from them about how to think better and how to live more wisely, as well as how to make money. And one of the things that greatly pleased me in doing this research is that I think those things are very much connected. I, it seems to me a great advantage to behave with integrity. And I talked to Tom Gaynor about this and said to him, how do you square it with, say, the tremendous success of Donald Trump or the tremendous success of you know, many of these tycoons who you know, had reputations for having very sharp elbows, leaving unpaid bills, having thousands of lawsuits. And I'm not saying this is a political comment on Trump. It's a kind of zero-sum game approach to business where you're basically saying, for me to win, somebody has to lose. And Tom Gaynor said to me something that I hope is true. He said, there are people who get away with bluster and bullying and slipperiness and hard elbows, and it works fantastically for a long time. But he said, it always comes unraveled. And then he sort of paused and said, always. And he said, when you look at the people who sustain tremendous success over many, many years, many decades, he said, I think without exception, those are people with tremendous integrity. And this is something that when I went to interview Charlie Munger, I asked him very specifically about, because Munger, I regard as one of the kind of 
great sages of the investing and business world. And Munger now is 97. When I interviewed him, he was 93. And I, I asked him specifically about this. And he said, look, I was at Harvard, Harvard Law School, I think it was, with Sumner Redstone. And he said, Sumner Redstone has more money than me. He's a multi-billionaire. But he said, he's my example of what I don't want to be in life. And he said, even his own children hated him. And his wives hated him. And, I, you know, I don't know Sumner Redstone. And I'm not trying to blind him, given that he's, especially because he's now dead. But he said, he said, that was my example all through my life of what I don't want to be. And he said, there are all of these people who, for example, want to brutalize their suppliers. And he's like, I don't want to brutalize my suppliers. He said, my attitude to life is win-win. And I asked him what he'd learned about how to have a happy life that he could share with us. And he started talking about his relationships, for example, with Warren Buffett. And he said, Warren has been a marvelous partner to me, and I've been a good partner to him. And he said, if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. And he said, it's the same with marriage. He said, if, if you want to have a good spouse, deserve one. And I just think there's tremendous wisdom in that. And I, I talked to his daughter, Molly Munger, who's a lawyer and philanthropist, about him, because I happened just to be sitting next to her in the audience at the Daily Journal annual meeting where he, he was talking. And she said, money was always very important to her father because he wanted to be totally independent and answerable to nobody. And I guess it was to some degree a marker of success as well. But she said the manner in which he made money was very, very important to him. And she said to sacrifice your your honor, your integrity for money. He, he was just never going to do that. And he told this wonderful story of um, turning down a company that he and Warren regarded as, as selling killing products and missing a $3 billion profit that he said they could have just made so easy. It was the best business they'd ever seen. And he just said, why would my life be better having made that money? And so I, I don't know. I, I asked Tom Gaynor about this more and he said, but even if it's not true, why do I care? I'm still going to I'm still going to live this way. It makes for a better life. And I happen to think that good behavior, as Nick Sleep would say, has a longer shelf life. I do think that's true. But maybe it doesn't even matter whether it's true in an external sense. I mean, when I, I you know, I, I had a bruising career in journalism, right? You can imagine there's lots of politicking and, and sometimes you lose and you get bad mouthed and and I would get very, very upset about these things and was kind of angry about it for years. At a certain point, it was very clarifying just to decide, I don't really have control over how other people behave. But if I try, despite all of my flaws and foibles and selfishness and ego, if I try gradually to become more honest, kinder, more decent, it's going to, it's going to draw better people into my life. And it's going to it's going to make me happier, make me have more self-respect. And I, I, I think that gets back to what the Stoics were saying, that you, you want to have that sense of honor and virtue yourself. And I, I think it's curious. There was one, one multi-billionaire I, I interviewed who I didn't really write about at all, who you know, has a reputation of being kind of a snake. And I remember reading at one point about allegations against his son, that you know, his son had got him massive problems. And you just, you just sort of thought, okay, so maybe he made millions of dollars. Maybe he's a brilliant moneymaker. But what sort of model is he for his child? And so I, I think you have to think about these questions of a, a virtuous life, not in a kind of self-righteous way. You have to, they're, they're thorny problems. As Eviard said, life is not simple. 
you know, you don't want to be naive. You don't want to be a sucker. But, you know, I think on the whole, you're, you're better off trying to lead a, a decent, virtuous life. But, but Gaynor said to me, look, I, I, you know, he has 19 companies that, he's, that are fully owned by his business. And he has, I think, 17,000 families that he employs. And he said, I, I can't be naive. We need to make money because I need to be able to support all of these people and reward our shareholders. And uh, he's not just a naive softy. But what I'm talking about here is a more enlightened approach to capitalism, where behaving honorably is a huge virtue because people trust you more if you're trustworthy. And, and so you draw better people into your life. And I, I think what's striking is that someone like Gaynor ended up on the board of the Washington Post working alongside Warren Buffett, who was on the board. You, you don't get to hang out with people like Buffett unless you're really smart, really talented, and kind of virtuous and decent in, at some level. And so, uh, you know, think of what he learned from that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And now you're kind of venturing into this this territory of the last chapter that you wrote about, which was one of my favorite. You call it Beyond Rich. And you point out something very interesting. I mean, these people that you're interviewing, these incredibly successful investors that have amassed almost unfathomable material success. They have properties or they could afford to buy properties, yachts, planes. Uh, some of them do have those things, I'm assuming. Some of them don't. But the question that you pose is, what does their wealth actually do for them? And what bearing does it have on their contentment? Is there anything you can say about that and what you learned from just spending time with these people and thinking holistically about their life? Yeah, and I, I didn't want to be naive about this either. I think there's a tendency for people to say, well, money doesn't matter and love is more important and all of that. And we know all of these things are true. But like most things, it's not simple. It's really complex. And I think there are certain things that money gives you that are tremendously valuable. And the common denominator when I've interviewed a lot of these super rich people who in many ways have won have won the jackpot. I mean, they, they hit the jackpot, right? And, and they have everything that most of us dream about. I mean, there are people with just these priceless art collections and these exquisite houses overlooking the water. And, and what struck me again and again is that really what the money allows them to do is to live in a way that's aligned with their own peculiarity. And so it's not just that you want to have all of these luxuries. It's that you want to have the luxuries that matter to you. And the ultimate luxury for many of these people is just to live in alignment with what they care about. So, for example, Monish Pabrai, before we were talking about how he has this incredibly uncluttered schedule, he said to me, I hate all of the mumbo jumbo of marketing my fund and having to meet with shareholders and potential shareholders. So he's like, I just don't do it. And so he refuses to meet with his own shareholders, except for once a year at his annual meeting when he schedules bike rides and stuff with them because he loves biking. And he has a kind of a guiltless nap every afternoon, pretty much. And he reads late into the, into the evening. And he, you know, he's structured his life in a way that's totally consistent with what he likes. And Bill Miller, likewise, said, said to me at one point, he said he was invited to give a keynote speech at some event. And he said to them, no, nah, I threw away my tuxedo and I'm never buying another one. And I think there's something really kind of wonderful about that. You know, Bill has made enormous amounts of money and as a result, doesn't do any of the practical stuff that 
he's so totally not built for and doesn't care about. So he doesn't fill his car with gas. He doesn't fly on commercial airlines. I, it was funny because he, he made this big purchase of commercial airlines when they were incredibly cheap a few years ago. And he's like, yeah, but I haven't flown on one in 20 years. You know, so he originally, when I first interviewed him about 20 years ago, he bought a, a private plane, partly because he had a 110 pound wolfhound that he wanted to travel with him wherever he went. And so he had just sort of structured his life in a way that allowed him to remove all of the things he didn't care about. So he's just totally not interested in decorating his house. So he has this beautiful mansion in, in Maryland and a lovely house in Florida. And he got his sister to design them, to decorate them for him. And I think he hired his sister and paid his sister to do it. And I think that ability to live in alignment with what you care about and what you value and what you're good at is a tremendous benefit. But then the other great benefit, I think, of money is actually just the peace of mind that it gives you where there's a wonderful story of this guy, Irving Kahn, who I interviewed when he was 108, who lived to 109. And Irving, he was a, an investor on Wall Street for, I think, 86 years. And so he had, you know, he was, he was the ultimate embodiment of resilience, right, as, a, as an investor and as a biological specimen, and which is all the more amazing because he smoked until he was about 50 and, and ate enormous amounts of red meat and stuff. But he was never trying to maximize or overreach. He, he used to boast his kids and grandkids about how he would go to, to Chinatown and have a meal for 75 cents at his favorite Chinese restaurant many years ago. And, he, and then he would pause and say, for two. You know, it was he and his wife would eat for two at this restaurant for 75 cents. And, you know, his son, who now runs Khan Brothers, the family company, said that his father... Basically, his only extravagance was books. He would have, you know, these cheap cuts of meat and would hate to go to a super expensive restaurant. And he said, but so, so he lived in the way that he wanted to. He commuted to work on the bus until after he was 100. So he didn't want to have a chauffeur driven car. And I think it was only when he started to kind of fall and hurt himself and couldn't see properly that he actually finally allowed himself to be driven by a chauffeur at one point to, to the office. But he continued to work until he was 108. So he was living in, a sign, in alignment with himself. And then at the same time, because he didn't maximize and didn't push things to a limit, he, he, he would always keep tons of cash and didn't use leverage and stuff. So when the market got killed, which as you can imagine, over an 86-year period, which started in 1929 uh, or 1928, right before the crash of 29, during that 86-year period, he went through so much, and yet he survived it all without the usual kind of terror of most investors. And what his son said is that, you know, when other people were sort of out on the ledge, hanging off the ledge, his father was like, yeah, I'm unhappy, but I'm, I'm fine. I can survive this setback. And so I, I would say that combination of being able to live in alignment with yourself and your own peculiarity that enables you to, to work if you choose in a, in a Manhattan skyscraper until you're 109 and the ability to live without terror about the next bill. I think those two things are immensely important, but I make a very clear distinction in that epilogue that I think is important, which is that if your internal life is a mess, doesn't matter how much money you've got. And I think that's why I ended up writing so much about resilience and equanimity in that final chapter, because ultimately, if you have all of the toys and wealth in the world, 
but you're a mess internally. Your life is a disaster. Yeah, I think Buffett says something like he knows a lot of wealthy people, and he says when you get to my age and you have a lot of wealth, the only thing that really matters is if the people you love also love you. And he said a lot of wealthy people are in a situation where that's just not the case, and they're they're miserable. Yeah, I end the book by writing about Arnold Vandenberg and trying to explain why I regard him as as not necessarily the most successful investor in the world, but the most successful human being that I've met in the investment world, because he totally embodies what it means to have a truly abundant life. And he's spent more than 50 years basically focused on how to train and rewire his mind, because he started with the worst hand imaginable. I mean, he started in hiding during the Holocaust as a Jewish kid born in 1939 in Amsterdam and lived in an orphanage while his parents were in Auschwitz, came out, was beaten up at school by bullies when he moved to a very rough area in East LA, really struggled at school, so much so that people thought that he had brain damage from being malnourished during the Holocaust. And yet somehow from this very, very unfortunate beginning in life, has managed to gain control over his internal life. And that to me, again, I'm, I'm writing to help the readers of my book, but I'm also writing to help myself. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what did Arnold master that allowed him to gain internal equanimity and also to transform himself by his own admission. He was a very angry man after the Holocaust, as you can imagine. I mean, he, I think his family had lost 39 members of the family during the Holocaust. And his, his parents miraculously survived Auschwitz. But even then, you know, his father was a very, very tough man who was a, a very decent and honest man, but he was violent. And he used, to, he, used to, he used to hit Arnold. And Arnold said he stopped when he finally hit back. And his father, I don't think this is in the book, his, his father was sitting in the drawing room afterwards, just stunned that his son had, had hit him back. And I was like, well, what do you expect? You know, he had to stand up for himself. And after that, his father never hit him again. But so he starts with all of this anger and rage against the world and then had a wife who left him and yet somehow managed to transform himself into this kind and loving and decent, incredibly charitable, sharing human being. And that was why I ended the book with Arnold, because I wanted to convey Sure, the money is valuable. Sure, sure, you want not to have the insecurity of worrying about your next meal. Sure, you don't want to have to do a job that you hate because of the money. But Arnold said to me, I'm the richest man in the world because I have everything that I need. And, and at a certain point, you know, he decided, I think his original goal was he wanted to have $250,000 saved. Is quite a while ago. So, you know, inflation adjusted, it's more than that. It's quite but a bit of money back then. Exactly. But he said, basically, uh, if you'll excuse my language, he said, I just don't want to have to take shit from anyone. And that was what the money was for. It was, you know, he was this tough streetwise kid and he didn't want to be working for idiots who told him what to do. And he is an incredibly honorable human being. And so he, in a way, I'm fascinated by Arnold because he's, you know, I spoke to him yesterday and he was saying to me, I don't want you presenting me as some kind of genius because I'm not a genius. 
And I'm like, no, no, Arnold, I'm not presenting you as a genius. I'm, you know, I regard you as like this re really admirable and exemplary human being. And he's like, all right, well, so long as you're, you know. And so here's someone who's actually telling you, I'm not, I'm not as smart as these guys and I'm not as successful as these guys. And think about the honesty and authenticity of someone who actually draws your attention to every failing, every flaw. And yet, you know, I remember once he told me this story that he'd forgotten when I reminded of it ages later, but I swear it's true because it had happened just that day. He'd been in a queue in some store and there was some girl in the store, I think it was about 20 or something. And I think her brother or cousin or something like that was about to graduate in his class in the Marines or whatever it was. And she was going to leave Texas where she and Arnold both lived for the first time ever to go celebrate with her cousin or brother. And Arnold, I think, took out a $50 bill or $100 bill or something and said, I, I want you to I want you to take your cousin out for, for dinner and celebrate. And she was like, I can't take this. You're a total stranger. And he's like, no, no. He's, he's like, what, what could possibly give me greater joy than to be able to give you this money so that you can do this. And so he gave it to her and he'd totally forgotten this because he's obviously done this on so many occasions. And so what Arnold had figured out was that the real benefit of having the money that he has is that he can share it with other people. And he has this lo lovely wife, Eileen, who he said, um, who's been married to for more than 50 years. And he said, Eileen has no idea how much money we have. And he said, and she doesn't care at all, except that she wants to be able to give it away. And he told me the story that, again, I don't think is in the book, where he said she had, I think, a cleaner or something who she wanted to give money to because she was going away on vacation and she didn't have any money to give her. And she was like, hold on, hold on. And she ran into the house and she finds some money. And he said the look of just utter joy on her face that she'd found this money so she could give it to this woman who was going away was just so lovely. And I think, you know, I'm not trying to be overly sentimental in the book by drawing attention to this. But I think there's a profound truth here that the reason Arnold is so exemplary and is such a remarkable human being is that he's figured out that it's just really joyful to share the money. And Nick Sleep and Zach figured out the same thing. So they, they shut down their hedge fund when they were 45. They had about $3 billion in assets. So this was the time when they could have made so much money on fees, you know, egregious fees. And although they'd structured it so they wouldn't get egregious fees because they structured it against their own interests. But they closed the fund down and decided, well, we figured out how to invest in a way that's really, really long term. Now let's figure out how to give the money away in a way that has the most long term benefit. And so it was a new problem that they were going to solve, a new intellectual problem. And what Nick said is, well, A, it prevents you from letting the money bend you out of shape too much when you focused on giving it away. And B, you have the joy of giving it away. But then the beautiful thing is, he's not like this kind of monk and saint, you know, like he, he still has these incredible race cars that he races because he really loves it. And he loves, he loves cycling in the velodrome in London. And he went on a 36 day trip in his kind of 50 year old Porsche, I think, with his, um, with his daughter, Jess, where they, they basically went from, I think, Beijing through Mongolia to Paris in this rally in his, in his Mercedes Pagoda. So it's not like he's taken a vow of poverty. He's still trying to enjoy himself, but he's going to give a lot of that money away. So I think there's a kind of dynamic tension here. I'm not, I'm not trying to say you've got to be some kind of saint and mystic and, you know, a monk who gives everything away. But I think 
the people I admire most that I write about in this book are people who've figured out, yeah, the money gets me independence. It, get, it gets me the freedom to say what I want, do what I want. But if it's really just for me, then there's a tremendous short circuit there. It, it, it actually, it ends up ruining their lives rather than creating this kind of circularity, this, this kind of flow where they give money away, it makes them joyful. They somehow make more money, they give more away. And I, I don't know, you can be mystical about this or you can just be, be pragmatic about it. And someone like Monish is the least mystical person about this in, in the world. He's just like, he's just like yeah, I, I just want to leave the world a better place and not screw up my kids too much. And, you know, the rest of it, it's all a game. Yeah, he started that Dakshana Foundation, which you talk about in the book and helping people from his native India move up in life and create a better life for themselves. And the story of Arnold Vandenberg is just an amazing story. It's powerful. And I think it's a good example of, from a big picture, what I took away from your book, which is various different playbooks for how to live a flourishing life, which means being successful in what you seek to devote your time and energy to. In this case, these are investors and they became very successful at that. And they did it in ways that often went against the grain of what others in their industry did. But they also lived a life of purpose and meaning that went beyond just money. And I think it's just a a great book. And this has been a wonderful conversation. Where can people find out more about you and, and the book and what you're writing on these days? Yeah, thank you so much. Well, the book is called Richer, Wiser, Happier, How the Greatest Investors Win in Markets and Life. And it's available on April 20th here in the US, I think April 29th in the UK and India and other countries. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, William Green 72 on Twitter, but look me up. You can email me, befriend me on LinkedIn, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty open. I mean, I, I'm hoping that this book leads to more conversations because it's a it's an ongoing journey for me to try to figure out what works in life and who I ought to be studying and who whose lessons I ought to be sharing. So if there are if there are people you come across in reading the in reading the book that you think I should really be interviewing this person, drop me a message. Let me know and let let me know what's worked for you in the book and what you disagree with. Because it it's an exploration. This it's not me saying, look how smart I am. Th- these are the rules of life. This is an exploration where I'm wrestling to try to figure out what works in life by studying these great investors and then to, to share those lessons and to live by them myself. So if, if you see things that, that resonate, that help you, or that you think I've missed, or you disagree with, or people I ought to be interviewing in the future, please, please let me know. William Green, thank you for being on The Good Life. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.